Amy Beckgirl here today with Dr. Rob Goggs, who is a fellow emergency critical care specialist, and just wanted to welcome Dr. Goggs to today's podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much for inviting me. So I saw your recent publication that was published in the Journal of Veterinary Emergency Critical Care of 2018 this year. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, I need to interview Dr. Goggs. Uh, Before I do that, I was wondering if you could just introduce yourself and give us a little background of who you are, where you trained, and where you're at right now. Sure. Yeah, I'm an assistant professor in emergency and critical care at uh, Cornell University in Ithaca in upstate New York. And I've been here about five years now, um, but as you can tell from the accent, I'm not originally from New York. We moved from the UK about five years ago. Prior to that, my kind of postgrad training was all at the RVC in London, um, and I did a PhD in platelet biology over at the University of Bristol before moving to the States. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Now, this paper called Retrospective Evaluation of Four Methods for Outcome Prediction in Overt Disseminated Intravascular Coagulation in Dogs, 2009 to 2014, 804 cases, I found really intriguing because we as veterinary professionals oftentimes still think that when we see a dog or a cat with DIC, we call it dead in cage or death is coming. And I was wondering if you could just start by explaining what DIC is. What do we clinically see? When do we see it? And how do we, quote, diagnose it in the emergency room or the ICU or even in the general practice? Yeah, so that's a um, simple question to ask and an extremely difficult question to answer. Um, So you did promise me that there were going to be no difficult questions, Justine, but um, fortunately you kicked off with uh, a pretty hard one to do. (laughs) Sorry about that. Um, Ultimately, um, DIC is an acquired syndrome that we recognize is characterized by widespread activation of the coagulation system within the vascular space. Um, And it occurs as a secondary disorder as a consequence of something else that's pretty bad. So severe trauma, sepsis, pancreatitis, these kinds of things that are body-wide um, inflammatory or infectious disease processes that cause you know, significant morbidity and mortality in and of themselves can be complicated by this widespread activation of the coagulation system. And normally, inflammation is local, is protective, is part of the host defense um, system. But we recognize in those types of disease processes that I mentioned, we get kind of spillover effects where you have very significant activation of the inflammatory system across the whole body. Um, and we recognize that there is crosstalk between the um, coagulation system and the inflammatory system, such that where you have potent inflammation, that can cause activation of the coagulation system. And as I said, on a local level, inflammation and coagulation are protective. They um, prevent bleeding. Um, they allow for the, the host um, organism to defend itself against damage or against uh, invading pathogens. But when that is across the entire body, um, it has the potential to uh, be detrimental because of formation of little um, blood clots um, that can cause organ dysfunction. Or you can also get uh, what I'd term macrovascular um, thrombosis. So the things that we see on ultrasound or on CT, um, you know, where you have a thrombus, a blood clot in a large vessel, that can also be a consequence of, of this DIC phenomenon. So that's the kind of um, backstory in terms of the, the syndrome. The, the reason why this study, um, I think, is useful is that the, the big problem for DIC clinically is making a diagnosis. Um, and we hoped to try and um, take the field forward in that sense. Um, but certainly, 
there exists no gold standard for the diagnosis of DIC um, in either human medicine or in veterinary medicine. Um, and that has left us with a situation of using scoring systems. And there are several scoring systems in human medicine that have been developed and validated to allow clinicians both in the emergency room and in ICUs to hone in on patients that are potentially suffering from DIC. Uh, there is a single scoring system uh, developed in veterinary medicine, which was um, a collaboration between folks at the University of Copenhagen and people at uh, Tufts University, which use a series of different coagulation tests to try and identify patients um, at risk of DIC or with, uh, with DIC. That's the only scoring system that's in veterinary medicine. And the problem for us you know, out in the wider world is um, the applicability of a scoring system developed on um, certain... Uh, patients in one institution um, using very specific coagulation tests is that they may not be generalizable. And so we wondered how well that scoring system um, developed you know, at an institution here in the States would perform um, against another institution here in the States um, with a different patient population with slightly different coagulation tests. We also were interested to know whether the human scoring systems could be applied um, directly uh, to veterinary patients because that hadn't been um, previously investigated. And obviously, given that they've been uh, well-tested, well-validated in human medicine, if they work well in veterinary medicine, then that gives us some confidence that uh, we're you know, talking about the same thing as they are and we can potentially extrapolate their literature on a surer footing. Um, and so that was the background, really. We wanted to know um, how well would the veterinary scoring system, how well would the human scoring systems um, perform um, for diagnosis of DIC. And we were also interested to know how well our own reference intervals uh, would perform. So the, the difficulty, as I mentioned, is the lack of a gold standard. And so we had to come up with something um, creative as a way to um, adjudicate, if you like, uh, whether patient one or patient two had DIC or did not have DIC. Um, and um, the, the scoring system that was developed in veterinary medicine and that I mentioned um, used expert opinion as the sort of final arbiter of whether DI was DIC was present or absent. And um, we decided to go a different route um, to try and um, produce something that was a little bit more objective. Um, and so we used mortality as the, um, as the kind of outcome measure, if you like, the um, the gold standard, the reference against which we would evaluate whether um, our diagnostic tests um, were consistent with DIC or not. And the hypothesis essentially was that um, DIC is bad for you um, and that um, patients who had overt DIC um, would be more likely um, to die. Um, and so um, we use that to um, gauge the kind of um, sensitivity, specificity, um, and to look at predictive values um, for a variety of different human and um, veterinary scoring systems uh, for the diagnosis of DIC. Wonderful. Thank you. It's so important just because I think if you talk to different criticalists, we all have different, quote, criteria. And so it's nice to see some evidence based on this. So when it comes to evaluating and scoring some of these patients, what did you guys end up finding overall? And how did you find that it actually, or did you find that it actually affected your clinical treatment or assessment or even prognostic indicators when talking to pet owners? Yeah, those are all good questions. So 
Ultimately, the findings um, were that use of the uh, reference intervals um, for the specific coagulation tests that we evaluated here at Cornell um, were ultimately um, the, the best diagnostic uh, criteria for DIC, i.e. Um, they were most closely correlated with mortality. Um, and so the, the DIC panel that we run here, um, and that's kind of in quotation marks almost, is um, a combination of prothrombin time, the activated partial thromboplastin time, uh, an antithrombin activity, a fibrinogen concentration, and um, a D-dimer value. And we also had uh, contemporaneous complete blood counts, so we knew what the platelet count of all of these um, patients were. Um, and we were able to combine different um, you know, subsets of these uh, values together to see you know, if you had two or, um, out of six or three out of six or four out of six um, abnormal values, which um, you know, would optimize both the sensitivity and the specificity. Um, and so um, thinking about uh, my previous comments with regards to the human scoring systems and the, the veterinary scoring system, it was interesting because the veterinary scoring system was um, very, very sensitive, um, but not very specific, i.e. it essentially identified all patients that we looked at um, as potentially having DIC, um, which is not very useful from a discriminating point of view, because you'd probably end up um, you know, making the diagnosis in far more patients than it's uh, really there. Um, and the ISDH criteria were kind of the opposite in the sense that um, they were um, quite specific but not very sensitive, and so you'd end up missing lots of patients. And what we found actually was that um, a, um, a score based on abnormalities in three out of the six parameters that I mentioned was probably the, op the optimum um, level of sensitivity and specificity. So uh, that was about 73% sensitive and about 81% specific for mortality, um, which translated into an accuracy of about 78%. So a reasonable um, you know, diagnostic test, if you like. Um, and the nice thing about a reference interval-based method is that it likely generalizes um, better than something that is um, highly specific to um, individual coagulation tests. And while we used the coagulation data generated by um, the Comparative Coagulation Lab here at Cornell, I think given that essentially um, we're using our own reference intervals, um, but there's no reason that a different test, a different assay couldn't use its own reference intervals, um, that it probably means that um, you know, your um, lab, if you had three out of six parameters um, outside of the reference intervals for your lab, you could probably come to the same conclusion that that is likely to be consistent with um, a diagnosis of DIC um, as it was here. We also documented that um, with progressive levels of dysfunction of the coagulation system, i.e. Um, more of the parameters being outside of our reference interval, the um, higher the mortality was. So um, it's, you know, stands to reason that if you have multiple aspects of the coagulation system uh, that are apparently abnormal or affected by the underlying process, um, that's likely to be uh, more consequential for you. So, you know, if you are consuming all your fibrinogen, if you're consuming all of your antithrombin, if you're generating high concentrations of D-dimer, that suggests that the underlying thrombin generation that is, you know, core to this process um, is... Uh, running unabated and that the, the worse that gets, um, the more likely you are to suffer the consequences. I think you asked about how this might translate into you know, conversations with clients or um, to kind of use on the clinic floor. The um, difficulty there is um, 
we probably shouldn't um, you know, say to a client, ah, um, we've identified three out of um, six parameters in your, in your dog and hence um, the prognosis is X because ultimately um, this is a, a population-based kind of scoring system that may not be sensibly applied to an individual patient. But I think it does inform clinicians in terms of the degree of um, scrutiny that they apply to that individual patient's case, um, to how um, carefully and how um, in-depth they apply monitoring techniques to, to try and identify deteriorations in patient status, and how aggressively they um, choose to manage individual patients might be guided by this kind of um, scoring system that you can say, hmm, this patient has you know, multiple abnormalities. Um, I wonder um, whether we are doing all we can to support organ function, to um, you know, identify and treat the underlying um, process that is driving the DIC um, in the first place, and whether there is a role for additional treatments um, to try and um, manage this patient's condition. Wonderful. So stepping back a little bit, once we diagnose a patient with DIC, I guess, can you tell me what are maybe the top five to 10 diseases where we as general practitioners or emergency vets should even be thinking and having DIC on our radar? Like what specific diseases is it more common with? And if we had only the ability to send out certain diagnostic tests, so we don't have the ability to, to do in-house PT, PTT, things like that. What are the three to five tests that you might recommend that we perform in order to get the most confirmed, accurate diagnosis of DIC? Yeah, absolutely. So the first question about um, you know, plausible underlying causes, um, they are pretty wide um, in variety, um, but the most common um, sort of sets of disease processes are going to be things like um, infectious disease, um, and what I have in my mind there really is um, sepsis, which may be bacterial, viral, or you know, protozoal in origin um, as a sort of syndrome of, of abnormalities. We definitely recognize that patients with um, cancer, and particularly um, disseminated malignancy, um, are at much higher risk of developing DIC. Um, and you know, for individual types of cancer, certainly carcinoma, um, sarcoma, um, and specifically hemangiosarcoma has been um, frequently associated with coagulation disturbances and the, the generation of DIC. But we also recognize it with um, things like immune-mediated disease, so IMHA, potentially ITP, although it's a little bit more difficult um, to, to make a definite diagnosis with the uh, platelet count abnormality that is common in ITP. Um, and then certainly um, severe toxicosis um, is also a possibility. So a wide range of different disease processes. And then thinking about you know, common ER presentations, certainly um, severe trauma is also a, um, a potential driver of um, of a DIC-like phenomenon. One of the difficulties is um, differentiating DIC from the um, trauma-associated coagulopathy, um, but that's probably a topic for another, another day's discussion, um, so the sort of nuanced difference between those two things. But I would definitely think about um, trauma as a potential um, you know, risk for, for a DIC phenomenon. Great. So really important that we keep an eye out, especially in those IMHA cases, those neoplasia cases, those bad trauma cases or bad pancreatitis cases. And what advice do you have in terms of the general practitioner or emergency veterinarian diagnosing it? If I can only do three to five tests and send them out and I don't have the ability to do in-house PT, PTT, what tests should we then do? Yeah, that's a tricky question. I'm not sure the study necessarily um, answers that uh, specific question, but I can give you my own opinion. I think that um, 
Until recently, we didn't think that um, the prothrombin time or the activated partial thromboplast in time, if they were um, shortened, gave us in, any information. There was a recent study in JVEC, um, I think 2016 from um, UPenn, that suggested shortened times might be of use. Um, but I think the jury's still a little bit out on um, how valuable that kind of thing is. And I would say that prolongation of clotting times um, tends to be relatively insensitive, i.e. it is quite a late finding um, in this um, in this syndrome. So I think that um, a D-dimer may be one of the most useful tests. Um, there is a point of care assay for, for D-dimer, but I don't know that it's in widespread use. Um, and I would probably advocate using a reference laboratory uh, for a D-dimer assay. I think you get um, better accuracy than with the point of care tests. So that would definitely be one. I think a platelet count um, is an essential part of this um, because we recognize thrombocytopenia um, and degrees of thrombocytopenia may give you information in a number of these different conditions. And that's fairly cheap to do in the sense of um, you know, emergency room personnel, general practitioners can certainly get a good handle on the degree of thrombocytopenia from a blood smear exam. Um, and I know that a number of folks um, will have in-house hematology analysis that can give them a, an automated count. Um, and I suggest that you know, the combination of automated count with um, secondary confirmation by blood smear exam is a useful way of gauging the presence absence and also the sort of degree of thrombocytopenia. So that's definitely something to do. Fibrinogen is a useful marker in the sense that um, it is consumed uh, during a DIC-like process, um, but it's a positive acute phase protein, meaning um, most of these patients will have an increase in fibrinogen concentration, at least initially, and it's only when that number starts to, um, to drop um, you know, below the reference interval that we start to get worried, but that it may also be quite late because of this um, positive acute phase um, response that you get with fibrinogen. And the other one that we evaluated um, that is potentially of use is antithrombin, but um, that's probably also a reference laboratory type of test. What antithrombin is indicating is the perhaps the degree of thrombin generation, because um, when you get uh, thrombin generation that is exuberant, um, it binds to um, antithrombin, um, and so the percentage of residual activity um, falls um, with uh, a DIC phenomenon. So that can be quite helpful, um, particularly if you have um, corroborating evidence of fibrin generation um, gen you know, that is given to you by the D-dimer. So I would be worried about a patient who has low antithrombin with high D-dimer um, as a perhaps more um, specific way of identifying the patient at risk of DIC. Um, and there was also a nice study um, from some folks in Germany published in JSAP a couple of years ago that looked at a wide range of patients with thrombosis. Um, and um, a single test is probably not going to be discriminating enough to, um, to tell you DIC present or absent or thrombosis present or absent. Um, but the combination of several tests may um, improve that acuity. Um, and I know there's also been a lot of interest uh, in thromboelastography, so TEG um, or ROTEM potentially as a, um, a single test that uh, might be of use in um, these kinds of patients. And I think that's um, fair and it certainly um, you know, has generated lots of interest and there are um, lots of places now who, uh, that have those machines um, in place. And I think that um, may be a useful addition, um, but I don't know that it necessarily replaces the, um, the plasma coagulation test that, we're, that we've been talking about thus far. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And last question, which I know doesn't have a great answer, but is there anything new 
in the treatment of DIC for our veterinary patients? So the, the short answer is um, no, we are um, anxiously awaiting um, developments in the human field to see um, how some of their um, new work might translate into veterinary medicine. Um, but certainly, if I can use this as a jumping off point to to talk about therapeutic approach for DIC in general terms, I think that um, the the first port of call is to try and identify and treat the underlying cause uh, because it's always a secondary syndrome. Um, and if we don't manage the underlying driver, um, then there's no point in trying to address the DIC directly. We also know that DIC causes organ dysfunction. And so um, trying to evaluate and support organ function, um, whether that's the, you know, the cardiovascular system, um, the pulmonary system, et cetera, trying to support organ function and minimize the uh, resulting damage or detriment from the DIC, I think, is a sensible strategy. And then the, the big debate is um, continuing as to um, what kind of interventions are appropriate in terms of reducing thrombotic risk or in terms of treating, treating um, bleeding consequences. The short answer is um, in patients who have evidence of bleeding um, due to DIC, and that, that means a true consumptive coagulopathy, those patients should get blood products, um, and those blood products should be tailored to the individual patient and their individual situation. So that may be a combination of things like fresh frozen plasma, um, of platelet products if they're available, and if that patient has um, significant uh, anemia due to blood loss, then red cells may need to be a component of that. Um, and uh, you can make an argument that uh, fresh whole blood might be a reasonable substitute given that it effectively supplies plasma platelets and red cells in a one-to-one-to-one -one -one ratio. Um, and that may be um, more readily uh, obtainable in general practice than component therapies. So certainly if they have evidence of bleeding, I would recommend um, targeted tailored therapy to try and uh, reduce that. The other big kind of um, part of that question is um, if I'm thinking about a DIC phenomenon, which is, you know, runaway coagulation, um, would it be sensible to intervene with an antithrombotic drug, whether that's an antiplatelet agent or an anticoagulant? The, um, the sort of short answer is if they're bleeding, it is um, not a good idea to um, increase that bleeding risk, risk with an antithrombotic. Um, so I wouldn't give an antiplatelet agent or an anticoagulant to a patient who is already bleeding. The question is, can we intervene earlier in patients who have um, risk factors for DIC um, and um, perhaps prevent, preempt the thrombotic complications uh, by using an antithrombotic earlier um, you know, in those patients at risk? And I've been involved in a uh, consensus definition effort um, sponsored by ACVEC and VEX, um, and we're going to be publishing our um, guideline recommendations. Um, it's called the Curative Effort, um, which is consensus on the rational use of antithrombotics in veterinary emergency and critical care, and that'll be out in JVEC in January 2019, and that should provide uh, much more detailed guidance than I can go to um, on this uh, podcast about which patients are appropriate for us to think about um, giving thromboprophylaxis to, um, and for how long we should treat those patients, what drugs are um, a sensible choice, whether we should monitor those uh, medications, um, and what we want to do when we consider um, discontinuing those drugs. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Goggs. Really important information for the, especially emergency veterinarian, a fellow specialist to be aware of. Again, with DIC, we want to be able to accurately identify and treat it, uh, remove away that underlying nidus for disease. And hopefully with that, we can improve our quality of care. Thank you so much for taking the time to do today's Vet Girl podcast, Dr. Goggs. Thank you very much. My pleasure. 